Thank you for Father's Day, Lord. We thank you for our our uh, earthly fathers, and we thank you for you being our Father uh, and our God, Lord. We thank you so much for uh, this opportunity we have to gather together on a Sunday and, and worship you and learn more about you, Lord. Uh, open our hearts and uh, be with Ben as he brings us your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to finish chapter 1 today, Lord uh, willing. Uh, I don't know how in tune to Southern Baptist life you are. Probably not that in tune, and you should be grateful for being so. Uh, this last week was the annual convention for the SBC. So the way it works is churches send messengers. Messengers go to the convention, and then they pass all sorts of things. And it is just, and I mean this, as exaggerated and, and sarcastically as you can hear it. It is so fun to watch. It's just a business meeting for three days. Um, but there's really good things that happen. It's a necessary thing. And so uh, it was interesting watching it this week um, and then thinking through this sermon as I was uh, studying and digging into the Word. What is that? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> what, is, what is behind this thing? Uh, anywho, uh, some of the things that, um, that happened this week, there was some drama within the SBC sorting out various sorts of things, and, and it's important stuff. It matters. It matters for us, and it, it'll matter for our, our local church, but the response to some of those things is infuriating sometimes. I mean, I have a fan, and I refuse to turn it off, but maybe I'll turn the pulpit mic off, and maybe that'll, that was it. Uh, some of the response was infuriating, where you see uh, people taking what's being said and taking things that are being voted on and things that are important, things that, that need to be discussed, and there's two things that we do with them. We, we elevate them to this status where if you don't agree with me on these secondary issues, not only are you not Southern Baptist, but you're probably not a Christian, you're probably Methodist or something else. It was a joke. Uh, or we'll take those important things and we pretend like they're not important. And that if we think too much or we care too much about those things, then you're not acting like a Christian, that you're doing all sorts of heretical things. And, and it's been kind of frustrating to see uh, that take place this week, especially thinking through this passage that we're going to walk through. Because what we're going to see here in, in this passage and the main point that Paul's going to give us is that the only reason you, have, you and I have anything to boast in is because the Lord has saved us. There's not any works on our behalf. There's not any value within us. We're not wise enough. We're not strong enough. We're not born to the right families to have any type of thing that we in and of ourselves should be able to boast in. Instead, when we look at the cross and we look at salvation, it should humble us, and then it's the humble who boast in the Lord. That we see social issues for what they are, that we see gospel issues for what they are. They're not too big. They're not too small. They're where they're supposed to be healthy in our lives. So let's pray, and then we will, or let me read this passage, and then we'll pray and, and walk through it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, the God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that we come to this passage this morning. We're grateful that you've given us this word today. That we can walk through this passage of Scripture and understand what it means to be humble. Understand, God, who we should boast in if we're going to boast. Who we should glory in what our sole purpose in life is. Which is to glorify you. I pray, God, as we walk through this passage that you would soften our hearts to your word. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Convict us where we need conviction. And help us to grow in your gospel this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to get halfway through. Start with verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Let's, let's pause there and look. Paul starts and he addresses brothers, right? Or if you have a more, uh, a, a, a very literal translation, it just says brothers. If you have a, a more uh, paraphrased translation, it'll say brothers and sisters. The idea is Paul's talking to this church. It's this group of people. It's not just males. It's not just females. It's this body of believers, this church. So the yous in here are supposed to be y'alls if they would translate it the way that God would have us speak English like Texans. Amen. It's hard for us. And we're going to read through this. And I was, I was talking to Mr. Jones this morning about some passages coming up that there's some yous in there that in our minds when we read them, we read you and we think singular. But Paul's talking about the church. Y'all. So, so brothers and sisters, this is not to unbelievers. This is to a church, a fellowship at Corinth who's struggling to maintain their unity because they've allowed all sorts of secondary, all sorts of tertiary issues to creep into the fold in unhelpful ways. And so Paul is now saying, this is how we're going to sort it out. This is how we're going to straighten out the church. We're going to get you back to unity. And the way to do that is not to press forward and agree in the middle ground. The way to do that is not to press forward with secondary things or tertiary things. The way to get true unity is to step back and to major in the gospel, which is what we have to be unified on. And what we'll see through this letter, and I, I could keep saying that and we'll just keep trudging along and, and, and you'll see as we get there, is all of the issues at Corinth result from this disunity. That's the main idea that Paul has here. And so Paul says, this is why we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews foolishness to the Gentiles. That it's not our ability to create experiences. It's not our ability to do all sorts of things. It's not pragmatism that draws people to the Lord. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And so he brings them back to what is primary. It's the message, the true message of the word of God. Is Jesus glorified? It's the gospel highlighted path. So faithful teachers, faithful preachers, faithful churches understand that this is the goal of the church. This is how we maintain unity. And that those preachers, those teachers, those churches were all subordinate to Jesus. So so Paul's getting back to the gospel, back to the things that are primary for Christians. Unbelievers are not going to understand this because they don't understand the value of the gospel. Paul tells us that the the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. They're not going to understand that this is how we maintain our unity, by looking to the cross. So he tells them, right, brothers, sisters, consider your calling. Now, Paul has told us what this calling is already. Two separate times in this letter. We haven't even finished chapter 1. Two separate times in this letter, he's already talked about the calling. In in verse 2, he says, To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. In verse 24, right before this section, he says, Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So when Paul says, consider your calling, he's talking about something very specific. He's talking about your salvation when you were saved. And what Paul's doing is he's emphasizing a certain aspect of salvation to help us be humble. So sometimes this aspect gets brought up and it gets distorted and talked about in ways that are not biblically faithful and biblically true. But it's interesting, since I've been here, I've preached through, I have to look because I was forgetting them the other day, Luke, Lamentations, Philippians, Esther, Titus, Genesis, 1 Peter, and Haggai, and now 1 Corinthians. And in virtually every single one of those books that I've preached through, this idea has been brought up in some way. And so Paul's emphasizing it, but it's, we want to be careful because it gets distorted oftentimes. And so it's worth us slowing down because we don't want to misunderstand what Paul is saying. So maybe you caught that Paul used the word chosen three separate times in this passage. Election and chosen are biblical words that we need to understand. We don't need to be scared of them. We need to understand what they are, but we also need to understand what they aren't. Salvation, there's there's two ways to think through this and look through this that we have to hold in tension and that we have to hold together. Both are true. Both don't seem like they can be true at the same time. However, both are true, and we have to be careful that we hold to them and allow the tension to exist. We are finite minds. God is infinite. So, one tension that we hold to is that God is the one who saves And it is clear from the Bible that we are saved by God's grace, nothing more, nothing less. We can't earn salvation. We don't deserve salvation, that it's a gift from God. And so those who are saved, as Paul says here, are chosen from God before the foundation of the world for God's purposes, by God's purposes, for God's glory. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He has every right to do this. He is God, and we are not. 
Second, only those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are saved. That we're not robots and we're not puppets. That God's not forcing anybody who doesn't want to be saved to be saved. And God's not forcing anybody who wants to be saved to not be saved. That's not what Paul is saying here. That's not the biblical idea of election. In the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which our church adopted as our statement of faith, it says this in Article 5, Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It's consistent with the free agency of man, and it comprehends all the means of connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and the infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. That's why Paul is emphasizing that here. Because he is looking at this church in Corinth and he's going, I know you. Remember, he had that Rolodex of people in his mind that he was running through and twisting the pages. Did I baptize them? Did I not baptize them? I can't remember. He can picture their faces. He knows who they are, and he knows that their struggle is going to be that they're going to either elevate themselves or they're going to elevate other teachers in ways that are unhealthy. And so Paul is emphasizing this. Consider your calling, is what he's telling them, so that they'll understand they're not that great in and of themselves, that it's the Lord that they're going to be great that makes them great. They need humility. So I know that this can make us feel uncomfortable sometimes, but it shouldn't. It should stir within you to see that God is far mightier than you and I can imagine. It should bring comfort for us in all sorts of aspects of our life. Think of evangelism. That when we mess up an event, when we fail to share the gospel how we should or when we should... That when we get afraid, when we bobble our words, when we say the wrong thing, that we don't mess up God's plan. That we aren't the Savior. We're simply the messengers. We can think through hard times in our life when when death comes to loved ones, when sickness comes, when relationships break, when times get hard, when there's financial problems, when when whatever it is rolls on our life and it stresses it out and it makes us frustrated and it hurts us and it wounds us and we can feel like we're just at the bottom and at the end of ourselves, we can understand that the sovereignty of God brings comfort in knowing that all of those things are not despite God, but God is using them in us. That your death that, that, that you might be grieving, it may be tragic, but it is not purposeless. And that God's going to use it for His glory. That the relationships that are frayed, that seem like they're irreconcilable, are not messing up God's plan, that He's going to use it for His purposes. That whatever problems that we've got are not necessarily God's way of showing His displeasure with us, although they could be, but rather God's way of reminding you to lean on Him as the provider. And we need to be careful Because you can read all of the scripture, and one thing that we might try to deduce from this, but it is not true, is that God never wills you and I to sin. We're never in obedience to God if we decide that God wants us to sin. God does not support nor encourage sin. 
But God will use our sin and the consequences and ramifications for his glory. It's not beyond him. That's the point that Paul is making. Consider your calling. Remember how you were saved. Paul says not many were wise from a human perspective. Or or not many were wise according to their flesh. Not many of you were powerful or influential or strong. Not many of you were of noble birth. You weren't born to the right family. He's like, what an encouragement from the Apostle Paul. You think that the church of Corinth wrote those words in real decorative letters and then hung them up where they could preach from it? Not many of you were wise. That's us he's writing about. Is it to local people in the local church? Paul knows them. He's picturing them as he's writing these things. He's running through that Rolodex in his head of the people that he knows. And he's like, I know you. And you know that I know that you're not the wisest in the world. You're not the most powerful and that your families are not the best families according to the standard of measurement that the world's going to use. In and of yourself, Paul's saying you're a bunch of nobodies. You lack wisdom, you lack power, you lack influence, you lack nobility, you lack wealth. Outside, you are not very much. Like if you lined these people up at recess, they're the ones picked last for the dodgeball team. If they're playing a sport, they're going to sit at the end of the bench, not be in the game. If it's football, they would be on the sideline and their job would be to make sure that nobody crosses the second line and gets in the way of the referee. That was my job in high school. These are the ones that they made participation trophies for. These are the people on Jeopardy that have racked up negative points when it gets to final Jeopardy. These are the ones from Wheel of Fortune won't take because they don't know the alphabet. These are the people that when you hear their last name, you go, I think I know your mom or your dad or your grandma and your grandpa. And, whew. Paul's writing this to a culture that values things different. It's an honor and shame culture that they're living in. So this would sting. Because basically what Paul is saying is, consider your calling, you losers. I imagine that's how the message translates it. Consider your calling, losers. But he doesn't leave it there. Look what he says in verse 27. Instead, those are important words, right? You're not wise, you're not smart, you're not of good birth. Instead, and all of these pair with what Paul's already said. So so instead, right, not many of you are wise from a human perspective, from human standards. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Not many of you were powerful, influential, mighty from a human perspective or or standard, but God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Not many of you were noble birth or wealthy according to human perspectives or, or standards, but God has chosen what is insignificant. This means like low, the base things, the lowest of things, insignificant and despised. Despised means to be considered as nothing. So the lowest things that are so small, we just consider them nothing. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world to bring to to what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. 
Paul's laying out a truth that is extremely comfortable, uncomfortable for people who have their lives together and for people whose lives are falling apart. It is what we lean into. That you are not wise and you are not powerful and you are not noble and you are not smart and you are not mighty and you are not influential and you are not important and you are not wealthy. Certainly not as much as you think you are. Consider your calling. Consider your salvation. God did not save you because you were wise. He saved you because you were foolish. But the fool who has faith in the Lord shames those who think they know better. God didn't save you because you were powerful or influential. God didn't look at your Instagram and see how many followers you had and went, you know what, I can use them. He saved you because you're weak, uninfluential, unpowerful. But the unpowerful, the weak who have faith in Jesus, shame the strong who think that they don't need the Lord. God didn't save you because you were of noble birth. He didn't save you because you're respected in the community or you're viewed as a somebody. He saved you because of insignificance and despised people. But those who are viewed as nothing but cling to Jesus in faith have something that shames those who think they have something and ultimately prove that they have nothing. This makes no sense to the world from the world's perspective. But what Paul is telling us and what we know to be true is the wisest among us are those who trust in Jesus. That the strongest among us are those who trust in Jesus. That the noblest among us are those who are adopted into the family of God because they've trusted in Jesus. We know that that human beings are created in the image of God. Genesis tells us this. And so this means that all human beings, whether we like them or don't like them, whether they're in Ira or Westbrook or whatever other heathen town we want to talk about, they have value, they have worth, and they have dignity, whether we like it or not. And so what Paul is not saying is that you are nothing at all. What Paul is saying is that according to the world's standard, you are viewed as nothing if you cling to Christ as your something. But here's the deal. The world's standards shift and change, I mean, like gas prices. A thousand years ago, if you were a bloodthirsty person who went out and killed people without remorse, you would have been honored as a great warrior within the society, worthy of respect and held in high esteem. If you do that now, you would be held as a maniac who needs to be put in prison and probably deserves the death penalty. The world's standards change drastically. They ebb and they flow. You can be esteemed one day and reviled the next day and do the same thing on both days. And so people look at Christians and they look at Christians and they go, you're weak. You need to believe in a deity to be good. Like, how weak are you that you have to do that? Or they look at us and they go, you're odd. You won't let your kids do certain things or watch certain shows? Weird. Or they look at us and they go, you're hypocritical. Your words don't match your actions all the time. You you claim to be this, but look how your life has lived. They look at us as judgmental. Look at all of you gathering together to look down on everybody else who doesn't gather with you. Here's the thing. 
They're right. We are weak. That's why we believe in Jesus. If we thought we were strong, if we thought we could do it on our own, we would never turn to Christ. We lean into the gospel. We lean into Jesus because we understand that we are weak without him. We are odd. We don't belong to the world. We're going to look odd, and it's going to feel odd to us. We are hypocritical. We're not perfect. We're going to to grow in maturity. We're going to grow in Jesus and hopefully become less and less hypocritical. But there's always this indwelling of sin that you and I are fighting on this side of glory. And we are judgmental. Not because we think we're better than other people, but because we see the lost and we know what their ultimate destination holds for them. There is a judgment coming that they cannot escape. And that it will not be good for them unless they turn and they repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we lovingly remind them, we lovingly share the gospel with them, right? The the, the do not judge passage comes on the heels of when Jesus says, take the plank out of your own eye before you get the splinter in somebody else's eye. So we certainly do that. We take the plank out of our eye before we look at the splinter in somebody else's eye. But if you have a splinter in your eye, you need to know about it. And so we plead with them in a loving way. It's going to be seen as judgmental by many people. And the craziest part of all of this is that this is like like we're who God has chosen to use. Paul's highlighting this from God. Saying this is the way that God has chosen to do it. He could have done whatever he wanted and this is the way God's done it. That he takes the weak, the unwise, the poor, the least likely in the world's eyes to amount to anything. That God passes over the wise, the socially influential, the upper classes. Why? Why would God do that? It's certainly not what we would do. Like every now and then, we will freak out when a celebrity or a sports figure decides that they're going to say something kind of Christianish. We think, man, think of how many salvations that's going to result in if that celebrity or that, that sports figure becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Think of the influence that that person would have. And then what ends up happening is we tend to idolize that person over Jesus. Jesus is great, but have you seen this guy? He can throw a football 60 yards. Paul's reminding us that the messenger is not greater than the one who has sent them. And that God can and God sometimes does save people who are people of wisdom and influence and noble birth. Right? That's why Paul says, not many of you, not none of you. But we need to be careful. The normal way God works among us, the normal way God works among you and I, is using a bunch of nobodies to tell everybody about somebody who might save their soul. That God in his infinite wisdom saves the needy, the lowly, the losers. Because it shames and it humbles the proud. And we need to be careful because we all live in danger of being proud. That's what Paul's warning the Corinthians. You have pride welling up within you. You're exalting yourself, you're exalting your teacher, you're exalting all of these things over everybody else. Your pride is what's being displayed, not the humility that comes with following Christ. 
So kill it. Kill the pride. Remember your calling is what Paul says. Remember that God didn't save you because you were great. In fact, the very opposite. God saved you because without God, you're a nobody in the eyes of the world. So why would God be willing to bring... uh, Why would God's will be to bring people to humility and to use those people? Why would God not want to have all of the richest people in the world to be Christians? Why would God not gather all of the smartest people in the world to be Christians? Why would God not want all of the influencers and presidents and kings and queens and politicians and Kardashians, the most important people in the world together to be Christians? Verse 29. So that no one may boast in His presence. It is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became our wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that no one may boast in his presence. Maybe your translation doesn't say boast, but it says glorify or glory. That verse is the purpose of everything that we've read this morning. It all leads us up to that verse in verse 29. Because it is only the humble who see their sin and shame and recognize that they cannot save themselves, but that God can save them. It's only the humble people who boast in the Lord and glorify God. Every single week we read our purpose statement, unless I forget to when Mr. Jones is gone, like last week. But our purpose statement as our church intentionally starts with this line, we exist to glorify God. That is the main purpose of mankind, period, the end. Everything else that we do exists to somehow use us to glorify God, to worship God, to boast in God. Everything we do when we do it right results in glorifying God. And everything we do when we do it wrong results in us not glorifying God, but glorifying ourselves or somebody else. No human being can boast about belonging to God because of their wisdom. No human being can boast about belonging to God because of their strength. No human being can boast about belonging to God because they were born to the right family. This is meant to undercut the Corinthians' pride. Paul says, it is from Him that you are in Christ Jesus. It is the grace of God alone received through faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves. God is glorified by saving the least of these. This is where our comfort in seeing the biblical idea of election should come in. You can't earn this. And if you could earn this, then it means you can unearn it. You can't be wise enough to do this. If you're wise enough to do this, and then all of a sudden in your age as you grow or whatever happens and your mind begins to sleep, then what purpose does God have for you? You're not of any value to Him anymore. That's not what the Bible says. You can't be strong enough to earn salvation. Because the moment your muscles begin to weaken, what value are you to the Lord? Why would He keep you? 
You're not noble enough to earn this. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Influence ebbs and influence flows. And the moment your kingdom begins to crumble, what use does God have for you if He saved you because of your nobility? Why would He keep you? Paul is calling for them to be humble because what pride does is it creates false gods. I won't do it, but you can walk through every sin you and I do, and ultimately at the root of every sin is this idea of selfishness and pride that lingers. Why did you lie? Because I didn't want to get caught. Why did you steal? Because I wanted it. Paul is reminding them of God choosing the unwise and weak and lowly because they glorify God. What do they bring to God? Nothing. That's the key. When we think we have something to help God, we are not worshiping God. We're worshiping our our ability to help God. And God demands complete worship of Him because He's the only one worthy of worship. He demands complete glory for Himself and for nobody else because He's the only one worthy of glory. That's our calling, that God has saved you, not because of how great you are, but because of how great God is. And it's from Him and Him alone that you are in Christ Jesus, who Paul tells us became wisdom from God for us. Right? We can misinterpret that if we want to not read it all the way, that Christ became wisdom, so He was created. That's what some people argue with you, but that's not what Paul is saying. He became wisdom of God for us. That Christ doesn't make us wise. He is our wisdom. He is what we need. So what is this wisdom of God? Well, Paul breaks it down. He says it's our righteousness. Righteousness means uh, like as someone or something should be. So good, not evil. Right, not wrong. Sinless, not sinful. God is righteous because God is as He should be. And you and I are unrighteous because you and I are not as we were created to be. We are unrighteous. We will not be with God. That We are doomed. And so Christ comes as our righteousness. Making us counted as we should be. Not by what we have done but by what Christ has done, the foolishness of the cross. The wisdom of God is sanctification, meaning we're set apart, made righteous, made holy. Your translation may even say pure, holy or pure. But you and I are not holy. We're not sinless. We're not distinct. We're not not pure. We can look at our lives and, and we can look at our past and point to specific instances where that played out. Or maybe we can look to our present and say, I can tell you right now where this is playing out in my life, that I'm not pure and I'm not holy. But Jesus takes us defiled and He becomes our holiness. It's the foolishness of the cross. That we're not perfect, that we still fail, that we still sin, that we still live unholy lives, but we're fighting against those things and trying to grow in the Lord and holiness more and more. And He's making us more holy every day. That the wisdom of God is redemption. 
at the idea of being bought back. That we were in a complete and a full relationship with God, but sin entered the picture and we became came enslaved to sin. And in Jesus, by the foolishness of the cross, we have been bought back from the power of sin. You see the wisdom of God? It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's what we have to remember, what Paul is getting at with the Corinthians. That at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. That we're all called to be humble. There's none among us who can get to the foot of the cross and boast. We don't boast in our greatness. We boast in the greatness of our Savior God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 6.11 says this, And some of you... uh, And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed and you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Romans 3, 24, and they are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's about who we boast in. And so Paul reminds us by quoting the Old Testament, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He circles back to the main point. That God God saves the humble and he humbles the proud. So that we may boast in the glory of God and the glory of God alone. And what Paul is telling us is this has been God's plan all along. This is how God uses this church and even our church to reach the world. It's not by us gathering together and pretending like we have it all together. It's by us understanding that according to the world standard, we are a bunch of nobodies. And that's okay. And according to the world standards, we're a bunch of nobodies who gather together and are real with one another. We're humble. We understand that the grace that we need to be saved has to be lavished on all of us, not just one of us. And what that does is to people who are unbelievers is as they chase all of the fake things in life that make them feel like a somebody, there's always a seed of discontentment that lives in their heart. There's never enough. They're missing something. And when they see people who are viewed as nobodies gathering together in content in the Lord, when they're somebody and they have everything that the world can offer except for the contentment that they see in the nobodies, it's a compelling reason to figure out what's going on. I mean, every church, the church at Corinth, Ira Baptist Church, whatever church, the only reason we exist is because God in His grace chooses the foolish over the wise so that no one can boast in him. He chooses the weak over the strong so that no one can boast in him. And that this is written to a church. 
a body of gathered believers that are coming together to worship God. And so he's saying, y'all, be humble, or God will humble you. And if you're humble, worship God. And so who is God? Well, he's revealed to us in the scripture. That's how God shows himself to us, is by revealing himself to us in the scripture. So proud will boast in the selves, but the humble boast in Christ. Because it's the foolishness of the cross that is the wisdom of God. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. That God, we can walk through a passage like this and you can undercut the pride that's in us. And you can remind us, God, that you are great and that we are not. That you don't need us, but we desperately need you. God, help us to be reminded of your cross. 